Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Welcome, Sky community. Welcome back to another episode of Sky Women. I am so thrilled that you're here with us today. I have a special guest, Dr. Sarah Boyles, who is a board-certified urogynecologist with more than 15 years of clinical experience treating women with pelvic floor issues. I also love the pelvic floor, so I'm so excited to have you here to chat. She is a well-trained physician. I will not go through her bio for lack of, so that I don't bore you guys, but... (laughs) She's very well-trained. So to become a urogynecologist, you've done medical school, you've done OB-GYN residency, and then you've done your urogyne fellowship. Fellowship. Yes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of years of training to do this. And what's really exciting about Dr. Boyles is that she also has a blog and a social media presence and a new podcast and YouTube channel for you to find information that you need. Welcome, Dr. Boyles. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is really fun to connect and to talk with physicians with all different perspectives. And we have had urogynecologists on before, but everyone kind of has their own, uh, their own take and we learn something new and nobody really wants to talk about the gyno issues or the, you know, the leaky urine and all the other things that are going on, but they're often suffering. Yeah, it's true. I I mean, I say to my patients all the time that I'm kind of the TMI doctor, right? mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of patients share with me the things that would be way too much information for almost anyone else, right? Things that you don't want to talk about. I think, you know, one of the questions that I get asked all the time is why I like what I do or why I think it's important, right? Because, you know, bladder leaking is not a serious medical condition, right? It's not cancer. It's not a cardiac issue, but it's such a huge quality of life issue, right? And it impacts self-esteem and body image Mm -hmm. and, and relationships. I mean, it's hard to feel like a vibrant, attractive part of society when you're kind of worrying about these issues. Yeah. So yeah. So um, thinking I about you need to wear such... a pad or a diaper. Right. Right. Body. Am I going you know? to like laugh too hard and wet my pants? Like nobody, nobody wants to be in that situation, but so many women are, they're just suffering in silence. They're not so talking. many women are right. Or, I mean, it's funny, the things that, that people say to me, right. Where sometimes women will come in and they'll say, you know, I just want to go to yoga and I don't want to have to wear black pants right? Like that is my goal. I'm so tired of wearing dark pants or doing exercise and, you know, making sure something is tied around me just, just in case. Right. And so they're, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about all of these things rather than just enjoying the moment. Yeah. 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 I think that's fair. So particularly in midlife, I mean, postpartum for sure. I always, I feel like everybody needs a tube of vaginal estrogen and a pelvic floor physical therapy script to leave the hospital. But how many people get that, right? I mean, I um, totally yeah. agree with that, but that yeah. that doesn't happen, right? And and a lot of people don't even think about vaginal estrogen in the postpartum period. Right, right. I feel like my my patients are always like, oh, I could use that. I'm like, yeah. 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 Because right. we're like, you're breastfeeding and your hormone levels are, yeah, yeah, yep. it's all off. 
Yeah, yes. no, I totally agree. Yeah. But, you know, we, we see these issues kind of perimenopausally too, yes. right? And I think, you know, everyone talks about menopause, you know, that menopause is when your period stops, yeah. but then there's kind of the lead up to menopause, right? That perimenopause. I mean, 10 right. years. Of right. Symptoms. Right. Where everything is just a little bit off. Right. Yeah. And there isn't a lot of pattern and things feel a little bit crazy. Yeah. And I don't think that's something that we talk about a lot. And lots of women's have symptoms during that time. Yeah. Let's get, let's get into it. Let's normalize this conversation. <laughs> so I, I think one of the things that I see super frequently for women in their forties is women coming in with a lot of urinary tract infections. Mm. Right. So just Vaginal getting estrogen. Right. Right. <laughs> You're just leaping to the end. <laughs> Sorry. I'm kind of obsessed. It's my thing. I'm like, my, my tagline is every vagina loves estrogen. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I missed that. I might have to steal that, <laughs> but you're wearing right. a t-shirt. This is every vagina loves estrogen. <laughs> Did you really? Right. No, I need, one. So oh, I need one. Oh, you need one. Well, yeah. I have to tell you, well, I maybe, would buy one. Okay. I'm, I'm going to have to market that. <laughs> I think you should. But, you know, I see so many women who, you know, in my clinic, my friends, I mean, just all kinds of women who are getting urinary tract infections, right? Mm -hmm. Recurrently, mm -hmm. maybe once a month, maybe once every couple of months, right? Mm -hmm. And and they're going to urgent care, they're being treated for it, but no yes. one's kind of taking it back to the root cause, right? Which, as you pointed out, is frequently lack of estrogen in the vagina, right? Yeah, Absolutely. So do you prescribe vaginal estrogen for your patients a lot or do you leave it? I mean, as an, yeah. as a Euro guy, like what? Yes. Talk to me. About I, that. I think <laughs> I really want a female Euro guy in Fort Worth, but <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think there is one in Fort Worth. I think vaginal estrogen should be so easily available. I mean, I think, you know, probably I mean, I probably end up prescribing it for 80% of my patients. And I think I must talk about it with a hundred percent of my patients, right? Because it's just such, there are so many estrogen receptors in the vagina and the bladder and yes. so many women have issues, right? Mm -hmm. and, and even leaking, uh, you know, I'll see a lot of women who are kind of in their late forties who are having an increase in their leaking yeah. and that too can be caused by lack of estrogen. Right. And, and so if the mm -hmm. timing of all of that makes sense, then I frequently put them on vaginal estrogen. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is your vaginal estrogen of choice? Because I always say, if your hormone therapy isn't working for you, but we're talking about local pelvic therapy. Correct. That it's either the dose, the route or the formulation, right? So giving vaginal estrogen, we have the option of cream, tablet, ring. Yeah. It's your suppository. So yeah. I like to start with cream. I think the cream works the best, right? Mm -hmm. in, in terms of, I mean, I just think there's more moisturizing in those tissues. And so Plus it I coats really, the vulva and the vulva architecture starts changing. And right. yes. Yeah. Right. So I really like to start with the cream. But I think a lot of women hate the cream, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's messy, applicators hard to clean, right? I mean, practically it's, it's you know, a little bit of a nuisance. Mm -hmm. So I like to start women on cream. If they're willing to stay on it, then I'll keep them on the cream. But then I feel like I end up transitioning to the tablet pretty frequently. Really? So, yeah. Okay. You don't find that? No, I would say I don't, ha I haven't put any of my patients on tablets, but that's just <laughs> 
what they want. They want it. I always offer it to them. Yeah. I do. I, well, do like I think a lot of Go ahead. patients like it because there's less mess. Sure. That's fair. Right. That's and fair. with traveling, it, you know, it can just be a little bit easier. So, yeah. So your go-to is the cream as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I kind of tinker with uh, vaginal DHEA as well. I love yeah. some interosa for people who would frequently forget to do twice weekly or three times weekly. I feel like that the daily dosing is a little bit easier. No, I agree with that. I mean, if ever mm-hmm. there was something uh, twice weekly is just so hard to remember. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that is, yeah. I mean, the twice weekly dosing is a huge issue. So um, then let's talk about the vaginal rings because I've been talking about vaginal estrogen on social a bit and um, recently gave, gave a lecture to OSU internal medicine group. And everybody is just like fascinated and has tons of questions about this. And one of them that um, someone posed, which I appreciate because I didn't address was it asking about the vaginal ring and which do we need to include a progesterone for endometrial protection, right? Which the S ring is a higher dose, but because of the placement, I'm sorry, the fem ring is our higher dose where we can actually get systemic therapy, right? But it has mm-hmm. the benefit of being vaginal. But S ring is much lower, but because yeah. of the placement in the upper two thirds of the vagina and the proximity to the uterus, would you still provide progesterone to protect against endometrial cancer? I don't generally. Okay. I don't, but I think that's a good question, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if someone is using it for long term, because there mm-hmm. isn't a ton of data looking at it, you know, past a year or so. Yeah. So that's so, just my question is like, I, I always say we would consider. Yeah. Placing. I would agree with that. Yeah, and yeah. and then I think the second part of that is always, you know, if you have any symptoms or if you develop any bleeding, then absolutely that has to be addressed. But right. you know, in, in general, the recommendation is not to provide progesterone with it, but you know, you, you could. Right. Right. I find that m- most patients who go on hormone therapy perform or in general, prefer the progesterone because it helps them to sleep better, <laughs> kind of regardless. Yeah. But yeah, but perimenopause is that tricky that tricky time where you could just do an OCP, but then that could elevate your sex hormone binding globulin, which could lead to a lower sex drive, and you know all of these different aspects that we have to consider. Yeah, that's definitely true, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But to your point, every vagina does love estrogen. It helps reduce urinary tract infections. It helps to maintain the vaginal epithelium. What else? Yeah. What are what are so, the things that patients say that they wish that they do? I think so. I, I think when it comes to hormones, right? I think that whole perimenopausal period ends up being um, a little bit of a black box, right? So a lot of times women are super surprised by the symptoms mm-hmm. that they get during that time, and more than surprised. And I'm, I'm sure you see this too, is how poo-pooed people are, right. Where they have symptoms and they have to present it to several, several providers, right. Oh before, yeah. Dismissed, dismissed right. in the dismissed a lot before it's yeah. you know taken seriously. Yeah. But I think the other thing is the pelvic floor, right. And the pelvic floor muscles. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, over the time of COVID, you know, with increased anxiety and decrease in, workplace ergonomics, right? Because everyone's working at home and they're working in kind of a funny position. Yeah. We've seen a lot more pelvic floor muscle pain over time, right? Where, you know, the pelvic floor muscles are a lot more 
are a lot tighter. Mm. And then, but, but nobody ever comes in and says, oh, you know, I feel like my pelvic floor is tight, right? I have this problem in this muscle. They come in mm-hmm. and they say, you know, I, I'm having pain with intercourse. I'm having pain with bowel yeah. movements. I'm having more infections, right? There's kind of this whole host of symptoms that mm-hmm. nobody's attributing to the pelvic floor. The patient doesn't mm-hmm. realize. And, and, you know, maybe some other providers haven't picked up on that before. Yeah. So I think that's the other thing is just really realizing kind of the importance of these muscles that, you know, we just take for granted. Totally take for granted. I mean, just think of like what the pelvic floor goes through in the life of a woman, especially a woman who has conceived, you know, carried children. You have right. a, a baby sit on your pelvis for or on your pelvic floor for 10 months, and then you're going to birth this baby, whether it is abdominally or vaginally. And then we're just going to assume that you're like rehabbed at six weeks with no rehab. I mean, right. if, a, if a baseball player had a shoulder injury, you'd be in rehab for six months, right? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it, it's absolutely, it, it's absolutely true. And it takes those muscles so long to recover after somebody so delivers. Yes. So, and that's why I always to ask women to like, give themselves some grace in that period, because, you know, like structurally things may look healed at six weeks, but that doesn't mean that the deep tissue is healed at six weeks. No, I mean, there's so much nerve injury and muscle trauma that goes on. Yeah. I mean, even when the skin is totally healed, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Those muscles still frequently are, you know, waking up, right. And aren't working mm-hmm. optimally until at least mm-hmm. six months postpartum. Yeah. Right? And and the more difficult the delivery and by difficult, meaning, you know, if you're pushing for a longer time, if you have mm-hmm. a bigger baby, if you had tear. assisted delivery, mm-hmm. right. I mean, all of those things just create more muscle trauma. And then with that trauma, it, you know, it takes longer to recover. Yeah. Um, And those muscles are so important, right? Because they're connected to your sphincters. They're always working. They keep you dry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they get a little bit off too tight or, you know, just not working quite correctly after a delivery, Mm -hmm. they, you know, you can get all kinds of, of problems that you didn't anticipate. Yeah. hundred percent. So, and, and if we don't ever rehab it, and then we go through perimenopause and menopause, and now we don't have the estrogen that we need, that's receptors in perpetual. I mean, it just leads to all kinds of problems. And yeah. I think most women feel like it's a great mystery. And if we feel like it's a mystery for in our own body, don't you think men are just mystified? <laughs> well, I mean, yes, absolutely. I think that definitely is the case, right? But I, you know, it's funny because a lot of what I see, right, as a urogynecologist, the incontinence, the prolapse, mm-hmm. a lot of those things can be mitigated or improved with improving your pelvic floor muscle strength, right? Mm-hmm. And putting some estrogen back in. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily reverse the prolapse, but it can reverse a lot of the symptoms, right? And, and if you right. have a little prolapse, but you know, you're living with it well, and it's not bothering you, then there's no reason to, you know, treat it surgically. It's not really bothering you. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I think that's a good approach. I think we have to be really cautious about who we do take to the operating room, right? Just because we're surgeons and we can't operate doesn't mean we always need to operate. (laughs) I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely true. Right. But I think, you know, the way we're wired, it's, it's hard to know if you're, you know, maybe having some tissue sensitivity because there's less estrogen on board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so those are things that, you know, it requires 
discussion and examination to kind of figure that out and say, yeah, I think, I think you are, you know, just a little bit low on estrogen. And just like you said, I mean, we see that in the postpartum period all the time. Sometimes when women are in different forms of birth control, they can be right. low on estrogen, right? And then that can lead to all kinds of symptoms, right? Or, or sometimes people come in and they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really interested in having, you know, sex anymore. And I'm worried about, you know, my relationship. And, you know, if you kind of track it back and, and talk to them about it, it's because things aren't comfortable anymore. And who right. wants to do something that's not comfortable? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Brain is smart. It's going to avoid painful activity. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, you're worried about libido, but it's not really libido. It, it all kind of comes from this, you know, place of things just not feeling great. Yeah. And that's, there's a short questionnaire that I use with all of my new patients asking about their sexual function. And one of my favorite questions is at the end, it asks, what do you think your decreased desire is due to, right? Is it your partner's issues? Is it your medical history? Is it body image, right? Or surgeries that you've had? Like generally patients, whenever you ask those 20 questions are really able to help you dive into what is the true cause of that low sexual desire. And do you think, I mean, you think people can answer that honestly? I mean, so one of the things that I think is, I think we all blame ourselves, right? And we're like, oh, it's, Mm. it's gotta be me. Right. Mm. But you see patients saying, or women saying, oh, you know, it's actually, it's my husband or body image. So I don't know that any of them have ever blamed their husband. I don't know that I've actually seen anybody (laughs) answer yes to that, but definitely like, well, it hurts or, uh, you know, I've gained 30 pounds and I don't feel comfortable in my body. So I don't necessarily want to get undressed, Mm -hmm. you know, I do, or it hurts, you know, they're, when they're able to identify, well, you know, it really doesn't feel good. So I don't want to do it. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever had them actually blame husband. They may later admit that he has erectile dysfunction or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause some of those body parts don't age particularly well, but yeah, I I think, you know, I think we're all kind of quick to blame ourselves and say, oh, you know, this must be a, a me problem. And, and usually it's, you know, kind of a, a we problem in figuring those things out. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's, it's, I think it's hard. Most of us are having sex, but not talking about sex. I think it's hard for partners to approach that. And so if anybody's struggling with how to talk with their partner about sex, you know, just go listen to Kelly Casperson's podcast and get her book. You are not broken because it's so fantastic. Yeah, she does a great job. She does a great job. And it's good for, for males and females to read. You are not broken. Stop shitting all over your sex life. It'll teach you a lot. (laughs) So let's, let's talk about incontinence a little bit, because this is okay. kind of your, your expertise. Yep. And so besides pelvic floor physical therapy and adding estrogen, what are the different types of incontinence and then treatment modalities? Yeah. So knowing why you're leaking is, you know, really the, the, the first step, right? Because there are different reasons that women leak. And I have a little diagnosis finder that's on my website to help women, but you know, the most common type of leaking that we see is stress incontinence, which is leaking with coughing and sneezing and exercise. There's also overactive bladder where your bladder squeezes when you're not ready for it to. And then those women have more symptoms of urgency, frequency, not being able to get there. And then you can have mixed incontinence, which is both, right? Which is kind Mm -hmm. of salt in the wounds, not necessarily Mm -hmm. fair, but you can definitely Mm -hmm. get both. And, And when you have both, sometimes it's hard to figure out what's going on. 
Some women don't empty well, and that can lead to some leaking, but that is definitely less common. With stress incontinence, so so actually with both types, all types of incontinence, we usually start with pelvic floor strengthening, and you mm-hmm. use the pelvic floor in different ways to stop the leaking. So if you brace and contract your muscles, you will not leak with coughing, sneezing exercise, right? So that's a technique that we teach women to do called the knack. If you contract your pelvic floor and it, it'll contract your sphincters and that tells the bladder to relax. And so there are different exercises that you can do for urge suppression to help with that. So education and pelvic floor training are always where we start. Start. Okay. Yeah. For stress incontinence, there are also pessaries. So a pessary is a device that fits in the vagina, puts a little bit of pressure on the urethra to stop leaking. I think that works really well, especially if you're leaking during exercise, right? If you're just leaking during exercise and that's something that you can put on to support yourself and that works really well. There is one available over the counter right now in the U.S. called the Impressa, but a couple more that are coming to market. There are more available over the counter in other countries, but there are a couple that you can get by seeing a physician or a physical a physical therapist. Pelvic floor physical therapist can now fit for pessaries in the U.S. too. Which oh, is nice! Yeah, because that is one of my least favorite things to do. I mean, I do it, but fit someone for a pessary. Well, it just takes it just takes a lot of time. It can take a lot of time. And, you know, if you're seeing a pelvic floor therapist, they're examining you, you're comfortable with them. That person's been trained. I, I think yeah. it just makes sense, right? To have them yeah. have them do it there. So that's kind of a newer thing. You can do bulking procedures. So a bulking procedure is kind of like filler for the urethra. And the benefit of that is that there isn't any downtime. So it doesn't work quite as well as a surgery, but it can really minimize the leaking with exercise and and help women. And so a lot of women are really happy with that. And then you can do a sling surgery. So a sling is just where we put a piece of material under the urethra to stop leaking. And the most common type of material is a mesh. Not everyone likes a mesh, right? There's lots of talk about mesh. And so you don't have to use mesh. I mean, you can use other forms of tissue. You can use your own tissue and just take it from another part of the body and put it underneath the urethra. So I, I think the important thing about you know stress incontinence and urge incontinence is that there's a lot of different things that you can do, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. women think that that's, that's it, right? And they're just mm-hmm. gonna have to live with this forever. And that's definitely right. not the case. For urgency incontinence, you know, there are medications that you can try. There are about eight medications on the market right now. So lots of different medications that women try. You can put Botox in the bladder, which will help leaking. Botox works really well. The the biggest problem with it is that you have to repeat it, right? Because Botox will wear off. And so usually it lasts for about six to nine months. And then there do you place it in the bladder? You actually do a series of injections in the bladder and just inject it along the base of the bladder. So you're doing that intravaginally? You do it through a cystoscope. Oh, okay. okay. Look in through the bladder. And then we have this incredibly long, teeny tiny needle where you can place it. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. I use Botox on the pelvic floor to help relax those muscles whenever we have vaginismus in conjunction with pelvic floor PT. Yep. Um, especially if they've been resistant over time, but I um, hadn't seen it used in the bladder. So that's, yeah. that's really neat. Yeah. yeah. No, and it, it works really well, just like it does for vaginismus, right? I mean, anytime, mm-hmm. you know, it does a good job of, of relaxing those muscles and um, getting mm-hmm. those muscles to stop contracting as much. 
And then there are different nerve stimulations for bladder that for overactive bladder that you can do for urgency and continence. So there are permanent implants that you can do. There's a nerve Mm -hmm. that runs along the ankle, your posterior tibial nerve that you can stimulate, and that'll calm down the bladder too. So, and that's one that you can do at home with a TENS unit, right? Or you can come into the office and we can do it with an acupuncture needle. There's even a permanent implant right now that you can put in the ankle to help with overactive bladder. So there's lots of different things out there. Okay. So I have a perimenopausal female, perhaps postmenopausal in that age range who is not getting great sleep at night because of overactive bladder. And she's on a medication. She's not seeing a a load of results. She's doing pelvic floor PT. We started vaginal estrogen and she's going to go for acupuncture. And I thought, curious, you know, I'm all about, you know, multiple modalities, but I didn't realize that it was at the ankle. Well, so that's actually how all of this started is that acupuncture worked well for overactive bladder. And then we kind of figured that out and figured out how to stimulate that nerve more directly, but it did all start with acupuncture. It's pretty miserable when your bladder is impacting your sleep. I am personally Mm -hmm. love sleep. I love uninterrupted sleep. One of the things that I always do in that situation is I always have patients do avoiding diary, right? To look at how much they're emptying at night and to look at that percentage to see if they're producing more urine at night. Do you have them pee into a hat? I do. Yeah, Mm -hmm. avoid into a hat. Which people hate, right? It's not very fun. Um, Not sexy. Not sexy. No, Mm -mm. bad for travel, not great for work, but gives you lots of great information. And if you are producing more than a third of your urine volume at night, then sometimes that's a sign of other health conditions going on. Mm -hmm. And the most common one I see is actually sleep apnea. Mm, right. Right. Which can, you know, cause you to make more urine at night and then you're getting up mm. more, maybe leaking, but yes. you know, frequently just getting up a lot at night. And then, you yes. know, treating that sleep apnea will reverse everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that, uh, the sleep apnea, because it, it actually, we see a, a larger incidence in menopause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny how certain diagnoses diagnoses are, you know, kind of trendy. And I feel like sleep apnea is just kind of getting its, its time in the sun right now, but it is so common, right. And it it does have so many impacts on health. Yeah, absolutely. So tell everybody where they can find you on the World Wide web, since you're making yourself so accessible and providing great information for patients. I have a website that is called the women's bladder And so there, you know, I have a blog there and there's lots of information about the bladder. There's my diagnosis finder. And then I also have a social media presence with the same name, the women's bladder doctor, where I post information about, you know, bladder and health concerns that are related. Yeah. And then I just started a podcast that's called while you wait And it's to help women who are waiting to see a specialist, just figure out the different things that they can do while they're waiting to help themselves. So, Oh, I love that. Yeah. I'm super excited about it. It all kind of came about because I was talking to some friends of mine in primary care and they were complaining about the weight and we were kind of brainstorming about different things that we can do. And, you know, there are just ways that you can get started at home. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I think that's awesome. I'm, I'm going to follow you now. 
Wow. All right. Everybody else do the same. Okay. Right. That's great information. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining thank us today. You. This has been great medical education. I feel like it will definitely empower listeners to, you know, have the information they need to ask the right questions whenever they're seeking help. And just to know that, you know, vaginal estrogen can do wonders too for your bladder. <laughs> and I right? think you should make the t-shirts. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to Google now how to. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks All right. so much. Have a yes. great day. You too. Until next week, be well. All right, Sky community. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, look us up at skywomenshealth.com, request an appointment, and we'll call to get you scheduled. As a board-certified OB-GYN with a Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this, and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website, as mentioned, or on social at Sky Women's Health, or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.